Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite ways to spend time is with a wise person, with a very, very, very wise person. Um, and I know for a lot of us, when we think of a wise person, we think of an elderly person, an old person, and that's often the case, okay? A lot of us, I think, have grandfathers or grandmothers or neighbors or friends who have lived a long life, and they have lots of stories to tell and lots of wisdom to share. Um, but when I think of a wise person, I also think of really anybody who's lived a lot of life and seen a lot of things and has a um, knack for giving advice. Uh, I, I went on a hunting trip a few months ago. My father paid the bill, and myself and him and my brother-in-law went on a, a hunting trip, and it was this great time, and it was a very kind of, uh, kind of high-class hunting trip, so forgive me if you uh, actually know how to hunt and do those kind of things. We, we were given a hunting guide for the entire weekend, and he was a hoot. He comes to mind as one of these wise characters. He was an ex-Marine uh, over in most of the wars that we fought in the Middle East in the past if you know Chris Laroon, many of us do. He used to come to the church, a close friend to a lot of us. Lots of enthusiasm, lots of great stories. It's like a redneck Chris Laroon, like a hillbilly Chris Laroon. Like lived out in his country his whole life. By the time he was three, had probably killed about most things you can kill with your bare hands. And he's kind of been doing it his whole life. He, he's worked for private contractors over in the Middle East. He's kind of rubbed shoulders and elbows with some of the most powerful and some of the most scary kind of men in the U.S. government and just had all kinds of stories. It's the kind of person that when you're talking to, you're not inclined to have a conversation with as much as you're inclined to just listen, right? And just ask more questions and get more out of them. Now, these wise people come in all shapes and sizes. Again, in my mind, I don't even think necessarily of what's correct, right? Like maybe they don't have everything perfect, but it's the kind of person you're listening to and you go, I'm not going to debate you on that topic, right? I'm just going to hear, I'm going to see if there's anything I can learn. Um, I'm just going to try to soak up what I could. And one of the many things that he taught me that weekend, out of a, a slew of different things, was a saying of his. And he repeated it at least 15 times in the two days that we were together. And I, I promise I think of it at least once a week now. And, and it was this. He said, everyone wants to be a gangster until it's time to do gangster sh- stuff. He said stuff. Everyone wants to be a gangster until it's time to do gangster things. Everyone wants to be a tough guy, a tough girl. Everyone wants to be the leader or the boss, right? Until it comes time to do those difficult things, to do those things that make a boss a boss or a leader a leader or a tough person a tough person. And, and he had all of this kind of pithy wisdom, these kind of short one-liners for you. And, and we are currently in a series in Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom book. It's one of the books in our scriptures that seeks to give us this type of um, wise perspective on life and how we should live. And, and where we are in Ecclesiastes, chapter 7 picks up with kind of a conversational tone as if we were sitting across from a very wise person that we just wanted to listen to. Maybe for you, that's your grandfather or your grandmother. Maybe for you, this is a friend that you can think of. But I want to invite you this morning to listen in with me as we hear this wisdom. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, Ecclesiastes 7 is where we will be this morning. A few weeks ago, we uh, left off on our series in Ecclesiastes toward the end of chapter 6. And now as we end chapter 6, move into chapter 7, this morning we'll look at kind of the first half of chapter 7 here in Ecclesiastes. We'll see him um, move on to um, kind of a new topic, a new tone. If you've been with us through the series, you'll see he, he kind of moves out of more of a philosophical 
pondering about life into more of a conversational kind of wisdom tone. And maybe we don't understand everything he's saying. Maybe we don't agree necessarily with everything he's saying, but there's lots to listen to. There's lots to chew on and lots to ponder. You'll also see why we didn't necessarily want to do this last week with the kids in here for a big church Sunday. And so I appreciate Zach filling in for us. We'll pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. It reads like this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, if you had the option of going to a birthday party or to a funeral, I'm pretty sure most of us, most of the time, would be like, let's go to the party. Let's go to the birthday party. If you were like, no, I want to go to the funeral always, all the time, I think maybe let's talk after service. I don't know exactly what this says about you. Maybe you're just a really godly person. You've already read the text. You're prepared this morning. Here he makes a comparison. He, he talks about one's name or reputation. He talks about some ointment, perfume, or cologne. He talks about a birthday. And he talks about a day of death, a funeral, a time of mourning. And he starts out with kind of a broad, generic statement. He says, your character, your reputation, your fame, what people think about you, he says it's, it's more important than how you smell. The, the point here is that all of us, at all times, do all kinds of things to try to improve ourselves, try to make ourselves more attractive, to try to make ourselves more um, welcome in the presence of other people. He says, as important as it is for you to not smell bad, for people not to make eye contact when you walk in the room, they're like, ah, oh, do you smell that? It's even more important is it that people don't roll their eyes when your name is mentioned. Even more important is it for you to develop your character, for you to think about the way you live and why you live and what kind of impact that has on other people. Perfume and cologne is actually a pretty interesting metaphor for one of the big themes of Ecclesiastes, which he's been saying over and over again that life, everything is vanity. It's fleeting. It's meaningless. It's absurd. He uses this Hebrew word havel. And the, the actual word here means vapor, mist. And perfume or cologne is actually a pretty good example of this. You spray it, and you can smell it, and it makes an impact. And then in seconds, in a way that you can't really control or grasp or touch, it dissipates and disappears. It's as important as it is to have really valued perfume or cologne. This would have been a very important thing, a very expensive thing in the ancient world. Even more important is the type of person that you are, the type of aroma that your character gives off to other people, the type of reputation or fame that you leave behind. And then he takes this big statement and he starts to compare it to one of the other points he really wants to drive home in this section of the text, which is the importance or the value or the wisdom that can be found at a funeral. He says, better, if we had to choose, better is the day of mourning. Better is one's day of death than one's birthday. Now, in the past, in Ecclesiastes, he has mused about whether it's better to be alive or dead, whether it's better to be born or to have never been born at all. And that, that doesn't seem exactly to be the tone that he's trying to strike here. He seems to suggest, and we'll see this as we keep reading on, that there's something we're given on the day of death. There's something that we can discern when death visits us or the people around us that perhaps is not available to us at other times that perhaps it's not available to us in more joyful times, in more festive times, at a birthday party. Um, when we ask, why is this? Okay, why would a day of death be better than a day of birth? We're invited to keep listening. Our, our guide here, our, our conversation partner, he, he sips his coffee and he keeps going. He says, it's, it's better to go to the house of mourning, verse 2, than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, 
For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad, and the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He, he says here, the main reason why funerals are to be preferred um, than birthdays is, is because funerals, paradoxically, have more to teach us about life than days of birth do, have more to, to give us in terms of wisdom and the ability to, to grow in wisdom and to grow in character than, than necessarily these, these festivals or these parties do. He says, parties are great, but it's, it's funerals for the author where he's, he's given a chance to really grow and really think about the type of person he is, about the type of life that he is living, about the type of world that he exists in. He says the, the living should lay it on their hearts. Lay what on their hearts? Lay the house of mourning on their hearts. You'll see in this text, there's a lot of it's better than statements, and there's a lot of statements of the heart. He's going to be comparing things. One is better than the other, and, and this is all about our heart, about the type of person we're growing into, that we're developing into. He says it's better in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Again, I think we'd, we'd normally choose the feasting. And the reason is because we're all going to go to this end. We're all going to be in that house of mourning. And one day we're all going to be the subject of that mourning. This is the end of all mankind. He's, he's mentioned this again before, that death is coming for everybody. That's just a fact of living. But here again, he seems to take a different tone to it. It's less of, so why don't we all be sad and, and perplexed about it, but more, so why don't we really think through what we should be thinking about right now, what we can learn from that. Because this is the end of everybody. Martin Luther, the reformer, once said, it's better to invite death uh, into our presence when it's still at a distance than when it's on the move. And his point was it's a much better time to try to process death, try to think about it, to get a grasp on it, before it's actually present, right? Before it has come close to us, before it's circling around us, before it's playing around with our family members or ourselves. This is the end of all of us, he says. So, so why not prepare ourselves? Why not spend time thinking about it, observing it? When he, he talks about the house of mourning, he's, he's being pretty literal here. In the ancient world, most people would have died in their places of living. If they're dying from a natural cause or, or from a sickness. It's actually not even that uncommon in our culture. It's only been a uh, hundred years or so since this is the norm for you and I, even in the West. It's been very recent. Some of you have heard me talk about this, that we've kind of tried to push death out of the picture of our daily lives. It used to be that people died in the home. And that growing up, you would have associated a certain room or different rooms with the death of certain people in your life, or taking care of people as they got sick and as they, they passed away. It used to be that the realities of everyday living and the kind of death involved in keeping living going on a day-to-day basis were right center in front of us. It used to be that cemeteries were next to the churches, next to the schools. Now it's the case that we've, we've kind of tried to export all of this. We've tried to take it out of our, out of our, our center of vision. It makes us uncomfortable. And there are problems that come with that. One of these problems is it seems that people often get surprised when death shows up. I can think back in my own life, uh, a family member of mine um, passed away. And I can remember being so surprised with how shocked it seemed certain members of my family were that that person had died. Now, I'm not the smartest person in the world, definitely not the wisest person in the world, but it always seemed to me like we all knew that this was part of the deal. Like, oh, sure, we didn't talk about it, right? But I thought it was implicit. We all knew we were all going to die. 
And we definitely all knew that this person was going to die. They were advanced in age, very sick for many, many years. And I was just kind of like taken aback. Like, wait a minute. How is this like surprising you? I'm not saying how is it causing you to grieve or to mourn, but how is this shocking you? It seems like in seven years of watching this person be sick, you never really thought about what it might be like for this person to pass or for, this, for life to go on beyond this person, what, it, what kind of resources you might need, what type of moves you might need to make to heal and to grow from this. Because the living, the wise here, they, they let it lay on their hearts when they're, they're faced with the house of mourning. They don't push death to the side. Instead, they let it show up close to them and inform them. He, he continues, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. And there's a reason he gives. It's not just an open statement. He says, because for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart, um, for the Hebrews, kind of the center of who we are as a person, our emotions, our will, our personality. He says, sorrow makes our hearts glad. The, the message here is more like our hearts heal, our hearts grow, our hearts develop because of sorrow. And if you think about it, I think it is true that most of the time in our lives, it's difficult things that we encounter that cause us to grow. I mean, much like working out, right? You've you got to lift the weights. You've got to tear the muscle for it to then grow back and grow back stronger. There are perhaps some things you can learn at a party. You can go to parties. You can go to a year of parties. And perhaps you'll make a couple observations. Maybe one or two of them will be pretty deep. Maybe you'll be able to grow as a person because of one or two of these observations. But for the most part, laughter is laughter. It's light. It's not very deep. It doesn't cause you to think. It definitely doesn't usually cause you to like confront certain things you'd rather not confront about yourself or about life. But sorrow has a way of doing this. Sadness and grief, sickness and death, anger and frustration. It has a way of of forcing us to think about and confront certain topics, certain truths, certain questions that otherwise we would never deal with. And you can do that as a human being. You can avoid some of these questions and topics, some of these issues. But it's a recipe for, for a heart that's not healthy. It's a recipe for immaturity. It's a recipe for more heartache down the road. One of the ways that God chooses to reveal certain things we struggle with is by allowing us to face hardship. We face hardship and all of a sudden, we start doing things we don't like about ourselves. Because it's easier to control ourselves when everything is going well. It's easier to push some of our issues aside. But when that thing strikes, whatever that is in your life, all of a sudden, now we're, we're drinking more than we, we, we'd like to drink. All of a sudden, now we're, we're lashing out at people more than we'd like to lash out at people. All of a sudden, now we, we're struggling with our faith more than we'd like to ever admit that we struggled with our faith. It, it brings to surface some of the issues that are true about us. And by bringing to the surface those issues, it gives us the opportunity to grow, for our hearts to be made glad. It gives us the opportunity for us to build our name, our reputation, for our character to develop more and more. In verse 4, he says, the, the heart of the wise person, the heart of the person who's growing in, in their skill and living, that heart is in the house of mourning. It's the heart of the fools that you find in the house of, of mirth, in the house of partying in the house of celebration. It seems as if death and sorrow and grief, while perhaps not a more pleasant experience than festivals, than parties, 
it's a better opportunity for you and I as people to make the big leaps that we have to make as people, to be healthy and to be mature. Parties are a great anesthetic. Laughter is a great anesthetic. It's a great way to ignore, to, to distract ourselves or to move away from some of the pain we have in our lives. But it's in times of sorrow where we're put in a position where God might accomplish some surgery. Where instead of easing the pain or numbing the pain or distracting ourselves from the pain of day-to-day life, of our soul, instead a surgeon is allowed to come in and diagnose it, to heal it, to say this is the sickness and this is where we move forward from this. An immature person, according to to our text this morning, to this wise person we're, we're listening to, is the person who just wants the laughter and just wants the parties. It's the person who, when the morning appears, when death appears, when sorrow appears, they numb themselves and they distract themselves. They say, I just want more laughter. I just want, I just want more parties. He says, no, no, no. That's an opportunity for you. Use that opportunity. Wrestle with those issues. Question the questions that you have. Build and grow on the things that you know you should build and grow upon. Funerals, he says, helps us. They have lots of value for us if we seek to be wise people. One, funerals, he says, are a way that, that you and I um, truly enter into this new state of life. So, so if we're thinking about in what ways might a day of death be better than a, a day of birth? In what ways might a funeral be better than a party? Um, Christian thinkers have thought of Lots of different ways. Some here in the text, some not in the text, but true nonetheless. One of which is, is so Didymus the Blind, a very early Christian, said this about this text. He said, one of the ways very clearly that the day of death is more valuable than the day of birth is that birth is about potential and death is about fulfillment. For the believer, for the Christian, for the person in Christ, death is about, he said, the end and termination of all evil. Death is about you going on and inheriting what's beyond death. For the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 1, to, to die, he says, is to gain. To go and be with Christ is far better than to stay. So on a very kind of surface level, but profound and less understanding of death for Christians, it's, it's a way for us to go on to, to greater joy, to greater intimacy with the Lord. Funerals, death, is, it's also a way to help us mourn. Now, mourning is not something we perhaps want help doing. It's not perhaps something we want an opportunity or invitation to do. But Jesus, the, the Lord of you and I, are the, the leader of our kingdom, he, he says this in kind of his founding speech about the kingdom in, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. He says, it's the ones who mourn who are the ones who are blessed. They're the ones who are happy in the kingdom. And he tells us why. It's because those who mourn are those who are going to be comforted. The invitation to mourn is an invitation to experience the comfort of the kingdom that otherwise couldn't be experienced any other way. Funerals, the house of mourning, they they also help us to soberly contemplate our own mortality. And that's what wisdom might be in our own lives. And in Psalm 90, Moses, the prayer of Moses, he says, O Lord, teach me to number my days that I might gain a heart of wisdom. And this is what he's, he's talking about here. Teach me to understand that, that my days are limited. I've gotten a certain amount of them. And then to think about what I should be doing with them. We can go to party after party after party, and we can have 
laughter after laughter after laughter and never really quite be forced to ask ourselves, hey, am I, am I living the right way? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I taking care of what I'm supposed to be taking care of? But it's in that uncomfortable place, in sorrow or in grief, in that house of mourning, where that question is asked, where we can perhaps have the resources to more faithfully and more courageously look at that question and hold it and feel it and maybe answer it. And maybe from there be able to make a change in our lives that will have profound beneficial effects on us and, and the people around us. Lastly, the, the house of mourning is, is a, a way for you and I to prepare for the death that is such a part of our world right now. Death is coming for all of us. Death is coming for all of our family and for all of our friends. It would be unwise not to prepare for it. It's just not very practical. There are some things that I can guess with certainty most of us will face. Taxes, weird family members, I don't know. There's a handful, pretty certain. There's some things I I can't really guess, right? Maybe not all of us are going to have children. Maybe not all of us will have grandchildren. Maybe not all of us will travel. Maybe not all of us will have a lot of stressors at our job. But the one thing we're all going to face together is is death. It's going to come a time in your life where you have to deal with the death of a loved one. Come time in your own life where you have to come to grips with your own mortality. It might not be your favorite thing to do. It's, it's no one's favorite thing to do. But it'd be unwise not to be prepared. If, if Christianity is anything, says Stanley Howard, one of my favorite Christian thinkers, he says, it is um, the learning of how to die well. Christianity doesn't take death as a joke. It doesn't push death to the side. I mean, the very founding story of our our faith is the death of our Lord and Savior. And nowhere does the Christian faith sanitize that, try to to pass over that quickly. It addresses death. It it takes death head on. It looks it right in the eyes. And then it allows us to step through that, to see resurrection on the other side, to be able to, even in the face of death, look for the gifts of life that we have, to recognize and look up past those gifts to the one who gives them the Creator, our God. This is what our, our, our faith is about. Preparing, knowing how to, to die and how to die well. Even on a day-to-day basis, the, the Scripture tells you and I are called to pick up our crosses. Every, every part of this is, is you and I being trained in, in how to do this well. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that Christians, because of what happened on the cross and Jesus' victory over it with his resurrection, we no longer have fear of death. The fear of death has been, has been taken from us as Christians. And this is a passage I think we don't focus on as much as we perhaps should. If it means anything to be a Christian, perhaps it means you and I are no longer jaded with death. We're no longer scared of death. It no longer has the same kind of poison to us that it once had. We should be able to think about it and react to it differently than other people because of what we've experienced, because of what we know, because of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. If you think about it, people who are not scared of death are scary people. I mean, this is, this is, this is our one last threat that we can give to one another to try to get each other to behave or at least do the things we want people to do. You can, you can point a gun at someone. You can take him in front of a, a court. And someone who, who doesn't take that seriously, 
He's a scary person. We experience this in terrorism, foreign and domestic. The person who, who, who goes into a bad situation expecting or wanting to die themselves is a person you don't want to deal with. It's a hard person to, to really accept as a society. There's no real wins in a situation like that. They're not scared of anything. There's no deterrent. What I think the New Testament imagines when it comes to the church is a community of people like that, except instead of being committed to terror or evil, they're committed to love and the, the kingdom of God. A community of people who, who are committed to bringing love and justice and light to the world, and you can't be deterred by the threat of death or pain. You have no fear of these things. This is why the Christian faith has such a rich history of martyrs, people who embrace their death, people who sacrifice their safety and their comfort. So there are more important things. Because death's not something they push to the side expecting that it would never come to them. No, they've come to terms with it. They've embraced it. In fact, they've allowed the death and resurrection of Christ to transform it in their own minds and in their own hearts. He continues in, in verse 5. He says, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise and to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression, he says, drives the wise into madness, and a, a bribe corrupts the heart. Here he's basically saying that it's wise for you and I to surround ourselves with other wise people, and it's wise for you and I to avoid the presence of fools. He says we should be unbelievably grateful for the people in our lives who are able to come to us and point out to us what's wrong about ourselves. The person who can accept rebuke. Better than having yes people around you, yes men and yes women. Better than having just a group of people who laugh at all of your jokes. That's basically what preaching is, right? I mean, I'll just validate all the funny things inside of my head. Like that one, no laughter right there. See, it's just, it's gone. Better than any of those things, he says, is the person who can be like, hey, hey, this is wrong. I'm going to say this with respect and with love, and I want to help you work through this and grow with this. You could say it maybe like this. You could connect what he's been saying this way. Maybe it's not more valuable to be in the house of mourning if you're there by yourself. Maybe then you should just stay and play in the festivals with laughter. To really confront those issues and those questions, you're going to need wise people around you. You're going to need people around you who aren't afraid of you, who love you enough to say, hey, this is what's wrong. This is how, this is how you can get better. This is how I can help. This is how we can grow. And it's the job of each of us to invite those people into our lives. It's not the type of thing you should do on your own prerogative. Jake, I know something about you. Let me give you some advice. You've been doing this wrong. No, no, no. This is the thing someone should invite me into their lives for. Jay should come and say, hey, Mike, if I'm doing something out of order, I want you to know you have permission to come to me. I know that you love me. I know that you respect me. I know that you always will have what's best for me. So you have this permission. This kind of thing, we have to take the prerogative, the initiative in, in extending this to other people around us. Otherwise, you're just a jerk. And, and not only are you going to smell bad, no one's going to want to be around you for lots of reasons. You're going to always be, be pointing out what's wrong with other people. But equally sad is the person who has no one in their life who can stand up to them. It's the person who has no one in their life who can, can point out what they're not seeing about themselves. He continues in verse 8. 
Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient spirit is better than the proud in the spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you asked this. I love that last verse, verse 10. <laughs> Say not, why were the former days better than these? He's attacking your nostalgia, the good old days. He's saying, whatever else might be happening, if you're asking yourself this question, like, oh, why was it so much better back then? You're not wise. Now, it might feel correct to you. Maybe it's correct in truth. Maybe on paper you put the equations on, it looks correct to you. But wherever your heart is when you're asking that question, he says, it's not a good place. It's not a place that you want to be. It's not a good place for you to grow and to mature. I heard it once said, I thought this was great. Nostalgia is the enemy of joy. It's almost impossible to have real joy in the present or real hope towards the future if you're living in the past. I don't know about you, but the farther away I get from high school, the better of an athlete I was in high school. The more popular I was in high school. The smarter I was in high school. Our stories have a way of developing in this manner. Kingdom people should never be stuck in the past. People of God should never be stuck looking what's behind them. You should always be working in the present, taking joy, real joy, rejoicing in what is theirs in the moment, and then looking forward with hope to what God will be doing. He, he says it's better to, to know the end of a thing than the beginning. And he's talking about wisdom here. In terms of knowledge and understanding, it's better to know the purpose or the goal of something than just be excited about its start. When you know the, the end, when you know the goal, when you know the purpose of something, he says this here, your patience level goes up and your anger level goes down. So once you can know why you have been um, given or needed to seek a job, you'll be able to endure better times when that job is frustrating. Your patience will go up a little bit. Your anger will go down because you know why you're there. At the same time, if you don't know why or you have a misunderstanding of why, it has the ability to tank your patience, to skyrocket your anger. Or why you're in a family. Why do I have kids? What's the purpose of that? Why am I married? What's the purpose of that? What's the end goal here? If you have that correct, if you have that right, then you can endure rocky patches. If you have that wrong, then those become unbelievably hard to get through. Our workplaces, with our families. And then, I mean, just take that up. So many more levels to our very lives. Why are we alive? Why have we been given breath? Why are we together as a community? What's the purpose? What's the end? What are we all moving towards? The truth of that is what's going to inform our day-to-day lives. It's what's going to help us keep focus, keep the compass straight when the path gets rocky or disappears below our feet. It's what will inform us as people seeking to live in wisdom. It's funny, you, you can't plan things this way. At least I've never been able to. But this week, um, a former member of the church passed away uh, not too long ago. And, and we're holding a memorial service for them. And it just happens it'll be this afternoon, 2 o'clock here in the sanctuary. And uh, again, right when this passage kind of lined up for the Sunday, this wasn't on the works. Um, this hadn't been put on anyone's uh, radar. And no one was paying attention to that. Um, but it's been an interesting time to kind of prepare for and to speak with family members about the death of a loved one, the death of someone I didn't know personally, but who was a, a big, important, faithful person in the life of our church. 
see that kind of grief and that kind of processing and trying to put those pieces together. And then to go through this text at the same time. One of the things I've noticed is, in my own life at least, it is, I think, times of sorrow and grief in which I've learned some of the more important lessons in my life, in which I've probably grown some of the most as a person, as a human being. I can think of a funeral or two where a lesson was kind of carved into the stone of my heart and stuck with me and proven faithful and helpful and beneficial. It is in some of the darker nights of my soul that I've come to grips with some truths that have helped me be resilient, persevere. It is with some of my own weaknesses that I've learned what it really means to bless other people, to encourage other people. As much as I'd like for the laughter to be 24-7, for the parties to never stop, it's, it's been times in the house of mourning that have really taught me to mature and to grow, to develop a name that I can be proud of, that I can consider faithful. One of the things I've learned in the house of mourning is, is you and I should never attempt to deal with these things outside of the context of our faith, outside of particularly the cross and empty grave of Jesus. Every week we come to the table. In just a minute, we'll be coming back to the table. And it's the table that gives us the foundation for asking and answering and dealing and, and processing with all of these big issues. What I found is it's not healthy for us to approach these questions or issues without Jesus' own experience of death and resurrection in the forefront of our minds. On my own, I come to questions like this. I come to an untimely death in my own life, and I come with with open-ended existential questions that have no real potential for me to grow as a person, only for me to kind of spiral. Why would this happen the way it happened? Why did this happen to this person, not so many other different people? Why did this happen at this time, not later on? What I've learned is instead of these kind of darker, more sprawling, existential issues, taking Jesus, his own narrative as, as my cue, it's, it's better to look at what could be a very, very dark situation. Instead, go, where are the gifts? Where are the good things? Where is God working? What is God going to do? What can I trust to know God will do in the future? And so instead of saying, you know, why did I only get this amount of time with this person? Maybe reframing that and go, why did I get that amount of time with that person? I know lots of people who didn't even know that person. They never got to experience any of those blessings, any of those gifts. Why do I get the amount of time I get? I've been going through my life, and all the time I think I'm owed something. We're not owed anything, none of us. It's not as if one of us reaches an untimely death and something's been taken from us. Every day, every morning we wake up. This is another thing that's been added to us. This isn't a gift that we're given. I'm able to name and locate and appreciate and be grateful for those gifts. And again, I'm able to, to look beyond those gifts, look upward to the one who, who gives them. To the one who is the, the source of life, to the one who has come through his son, defeated death, and who through his spirit is forming you and I to be people who, who can deal with and move on through times of mourning and grief and sorrow and sadness in a faithful and wise manner.
As we come to the table this morning, I pray that we would indeed keep Jesus and his story, his death and resurrection in the forefront of our minds. And I pray that we also would not be quick to numb or distract or medicate against questions or issues that might arise in our own hearts and our own minds, even as we perhaps just think about some of these things. What makes us uncomfortable about going to a house of mourning? What is it that shows up in our lives during times of sorrow that we'd rather not see or think about or deal with? And why are we so quick to, to move on past that? Why are we so quick to look away from that? Instead, what, in fact, might the Spirit of God be saying to us? What might we benefit from, including the wise counsel of friends into those situations and into those questions? Where can we see the gifts? Where can we know the value? And where can we develop as people, God's children?